Today, as you might know, is October 31st, which means what? Uh, Halloween, right? Uh, No, Uh, maybe it does for you. Uh, Maybe you were out trick-or-treating last night. Maybe you were out getting uh, all those types of candies and goodies, and you, as a good parent, did a good job and taxed your kids and stole all the Reese's and uh, gave them the rest. Uh, That's what, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Um, No, but truth be told, Halloween has always intrigued me. Uh, We didn't really grow up celebrating it or anything like that, but it's always fascinating to me, just this tradition of dressing up in this costume, and then you get this candy for it as you go around to your neighbors. It just seems like the most incredible uh, holiday for little kids. Um, It's just, I have no knowledge though, maybe if you do, you can enlighten me, I have no knowledge where sort of the tradition of costuming came up with, where that came up with. I've been reading, I've been trying to do some research Apparently, it is having to do with making fun of the devil's power and stuff like that. I don't know. There's lots of really cool traditions and ways you can view it Christian, uh, Christian-like, I suppose. But anyways, uh, that's, that's all here or there. I'm not here to preach about Halloween. Um, or I'm not trying to convince you of the merits or demerits of celebrating this particular holiday. There's a far greater reason uh, for us to celebrate October 31st. And that's because it's called Reformation Day. Uh, this, uh, it being October 31st today, on a Sunday, gives me a really good excuse to preach about one of my favorite things and also talk about one of my favorite characters in church history, of course, and that's Martin Luther. As you may know, October 31st in the year 1517 was a day, of, like we could say, like December 7th, was a day of infamy and reckoning for the church. It's a day which many mark down as sort of the launching point, the ignition, so to speak, to what is now known as the Protestant Reformation. Because on that day, a very normal day perhaps, among all the others, this sort of unassuming German monk by the name of Martin Luther, posted, published, perhaps you have in your head that idea that he's nailing this document to this church door in the village of Wittenberg. And on that document was listed 95 theses, you can still read them today, 95 theses or questions, statements that he was posing against what he saw was many discrepancies between what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching and what they were propagating with what the Bible was saying. And he was so frustrated, so moved by this, that he had to come up with this document that is now very infamous, that 95 theses. And the rest is history, as, as we could say, as we might be able to say. Now, a couple of things. To be sure, uh, the Reformation as a movement did not start with Martin Luther. If you've done a lot of church history, this is something that really fascinates me. And you go back to the years, like the year 1200, even before that. But that's when a lot of things were moving and growing and towards uh, the church sort of standing up against the false doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. There were countless preachers and theologians and men of the faith who, yes, even risked and lost their lives because of their defense of the truth, namely, I would say, of God's word. The one that immediately comes to mind is the figure John Wycliffe, who is a very notable figure in church history. He's often called the morning star of the Reformation, sort of the precursor to what would eventually sort of lead to Luther himself standing up against the church. But I think there's a reason 
And I want to get to this this morning. This is sort of what I want to get to. And it ties directly into Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. As Pastor Nathan said, the words which really serve as the thesis to the book of Romans. And I would say they serve as the thesis to the Reformation itself. There's a reason why Luther endures, as one historian calls him, the hero of the Reformation. And I think it's because most of what he was doing in his day wasn't because he was trying to get accolades, trying to get attention. He was actually trying to find something a lot more common. Something, I would say, that's a lot more indicative of where you and I are here this morning. It's perhaps something that you have wrestled with too. Actually, I would say the reason why I love Luther so much is I identify with his journey of faith, if you will. Perhaps you have that image in your mind's eye of Luther with that hammer in his hand and he's very vehemently nailing that document to that church door. And whether that's entirely historically accurate or not, I I don't know. But what is really worth considering is what led Luther to this point. Let me ask you before we keep going. How have you, let me ask you this. How many of you would say, and you don't have to raise your hands, but just think in your mind. How many of you have ever struggled with or battled with assurance of your salvation? How many of you have, uh, you would say, I I prayed this prayer and then then I kept trying to live for God and nothing ever uh, quieted me. Nothing ever made me at peace. And you were even eventually made to hear preachers preach and they would make you doubt your salvation and you would get saved again. (laughs) I've talked to uh, several uh, people that were in my friend group growing up, and they, would, they had multiple conversion stories, if you will. And even my own uh, story is, is much the same. I made a profession of faith at age five, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus did not save me, and I did not realize the nature of what that salvation meant until I was 16 years old. I doubted my salvation a lot. Maybe you are familiar with that scenario. You you have read something and you've walked the aisle and you've believed something. But have you really believed something? Believed in this truth of God's word? You see, that, that right there is the driving force of everything that Luther did. He was determined to find assurance. Really quick, and we're going to get to Romans 1 in just a moment, but I want you to just see this story. To me, it's so powerful. Martin Luther, as you might know, he was originally grown up in a, he he grew up in a house that was all lawyers, law school students. And in fact, he was enrolled in law school when in the year 1505, when he was uh, on his way home, he was caught in the middle of a violent thunderstorm. So violent was it that he took refuge under a tree and it said, as the story goes, that he prayed to God that if he would just spare his life through the storm, that he would renounce his life of law and go and study in a monastery, study religion. And of course, God did spare his life. And very soon after that, he entered a monastery much to the disappointment of his father. 
And once he was there, much in keeping with what Luther's life was all about, he was insatiably religious. He was so zealously devoted after those things that he was being taught and what he was reading. He understood that God was equivalent to holiness. And he understood that holiness meant purity and cleanness and righteousness. One historian says that Luther was so obsessed with the picture of Christ as the avenger that he could not be consoled with the thought of Christ the redeemer. That was his thinking. Christ is holy. Christ is God. And he is righteous. And he has this law that I have to live up to. So following Christ then as he's reading through the words of God. Meant being rigorous with his life. And so strongly did he feel this demand on him, uh, this demand for holiness, that it said that he went about confessing everywhere, confessing every sin. He was just always trying to confess. The things that he knew might be blights on his record, blights on his resume. He understood this righteousness of God was severe and it wouldn't let even the smallest tiny thing slip up, slip by. One anecdote says that that his priest once told him to stop coming to confession until he had something really grievous to confess. (laughs) Because he's confessing too much. His school of religion, you might say was unable to give him what he so desperately craved, assurance. He was looking everywhere for it. He was looking under every single page that he could find, through all of the church fathers that he would read, through every practice that he ever could engage himself with in the church. He was desperately seeking something to settle his soul. He recounts later, Luther does, in a journal that he wore out his body with vigils and fasting and hoped thereby to satisfy the law and deliver his conscience from the sting of guilt. He was doing everything he could. Anything that he might believe could give him assurance of salvation, he would do and he would do it wholeheartedly. Actually, I think, just really quickly, I'm going to read some verses, if I can see, uh, from Philippians chapter 3. Because it reminds me a little bit, Luther's story does, a little bit about the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says something similarly. Philippians 3, look at verse 4 if you can, or I'll just read it really loudly. Paul is recounting sort of this idea of faith and righteousness. Notice what he says. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh, I more. I have more confidence than anyone, even if they were the most confident man in the world, is basically what he's saying. And then he recounts why he's so confident and, or why he could be so confident as he is saying. He says, I've been circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I've done all the things. I've zealously pursued after what I thought and knew was God's truth and God's words and God's laws. 
No one is more zealous than me. No one is more confident than me. I've done all of that. And then notice verse 7. What does he say? But what things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith. That was Paul's story. He was about many things. Many things that he considered right and true and good. And yet what does he say? When he was made to see Jesus for who he truly was. He says all of those things are as rubbish. They are as dung. They are as refuse to me. Yes, except that I win Christ. See, much like Paul, Luther says the same thing. If anyone could boast in what I was doing, I was the one that could do that. That's essentially Luther's testimony. And yet, despite all of that, it was never enough. It was nothing could ever satisfy or satiate or quiet his soul. He couldn't confess enough. There are always more sins to confess. He couldn't pray enough. There are always more things to pray about. There, he couldn't fast enough. He couldn't pay enough penance. He couldn't do any of those little rites. Nothing he ever did could quiet his soul, which was just screaming at him, you are guilty. His conscience was shouting at him about his sin, and he was so restless. Then, in fact, in one of the journals that I was reading that Luther later wrote, later in his life, he recounts how eventually he grew resentful of God. Because he was reading the words, how could God, this God who is so high and holy and mighty, demand such rigid righteousness from creatures like us who cannot live up to that? God seems like a tyrant. Why would he demand such things? Why would he put such a weight on creatures who cannot live up to this law that he gives? And come to find out in the year 1515. So 10 years into his studies in his monastery. He actually begins lecturing. He begins lecturing on the books of Romans and Psalms. Which, as you might know, it brings him actually face to face with what God's word says. One of the things that was indicative of the Roman Catholic Church was controlling who could read and who could study. You had to be the elite of the elite. You had to know Latin. You had to be educated. And those were the ones who were able to study the scriptures. And for Luther, he's reading this book of Romans and he stumbles at that phrase in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. That phrase in verse 17, he couldn't wrap his mind around. The righteousness of God. 
At first, it seemed to confirm all of his fears, all of his anxieties, all of the things that were weighing him down seemed to be confirmed right there in that moment. God's demand for righteousness is equal to his own. How can God demand such a thing? How can God put such a requirement on people he knows cannot live up to it? And he says, I've done all of this. The vigils and the fasting and the prayers and the penance and the pain that he inflicted on his own body. Until he was struck with the truth. Whether some say it's through the uh, sort of uh, the, the people he had surrounded himself with. A mentor, you could say, or maybe it was the Holy Spirit leading him through the words of Scripture, which I tend to believe. He was struck suddenly with the truth. That the righteousness of God, which the Apostle Paul speaks of in Romans 1.17, is not only the righteousness that God demands. It's the righteousness that God gives It's the righteousness that he gives of himself when he dies on a tree for a world of sinners. And as Luther would soon publish and make known throughout Europe and throughout the world. This word of God was not an agenda wherein sinners can try to accomplish or achieve this righteousness of God on their own. He had already tried to do that. He was already trying to make that attempt. Rather, as the word of God says, and as he would find out, God's word is a word of promise. That's one of the most wonderful things that comes about through reading the works of Martin Luther. Through reading the things that he would pen down as he was focused on that word, promise. That's what the Bible is. It's a word of promise. And it's a word of God's promise given to God's people that contains the announcement that the righteousness that God demands is the very righteousness that he gives to one and all on the basis of faith. That's what he was doing in his son Jesus Christ. And we can say the same thing as the Apostle Paul here is here saying right in this passage that your salvation and mine is it says the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes is revealed. It's literally the word, uh, the word apocalypse. It's made known. It's uncovered in this person of Jesus Christ. From faith to faith as it says. For everyone in this room, this is our testimony. The righteousness of God revealed in God's own son. Accomplished by his only begotten son. Because the one who knew no sin endured the exactness and the justice of God on his own body in that wretched tree. Luther came to this staggering realization. And this was his sort of fork in the road moment, if you will. He was learning this for the first time. And he calls it his rebirth. You could liken it to Acts chapter 9 and the Damascus road with the Apostle Paul. 
Where from then on, he is a different man. This word of gospel here. That's where his assurance was. That's where his assurance was found. In this promise of God himself given to God's people. Not his performances. All those things he had done. All those things he had done to his body. The, the, the pain that he had put himself through. All of those things that he could try and do. Could never satisfy. Could never quiet. Could never satiate his soul and its restlessness. Only God's word alone makes known The promise of God alone, which reveals our promised righteousness. So we come back again to that moment in the year 1517 when he's nailing that document to that church door. He's not doing anything overly remarkable. If if you nailed something to our church door, well, you would break the glass. So if you tape something to the church door, it might seem a little strange in our day and age. But think about it this way. It's almost akin to putting something on the bulletin board in the hallway. He's just making something public, making something known. And in fact, he's inviting conversation. That's what he was doing. He was inviting a debate that he could have with those that were above him in terms of church hierarchy. No, what makes this event so remarkable isn't, isn't the fact that he's doing this particular deed, this nailing this door there. It's, it's the content of what he chose to raise. The questions that he tried and he dared to ask. He was merely a student of God's word who could not stay silent any longer. This is what I love. It wasn't some amazing thing that happened to him other than the amazingness of God's word. He was a student of scripture who suddenly realized what he was being taught didn't match up with what God's word was saying. And he dared to ask the question. And such is why in the year 1518 later when he is actually being encouraged to recant. And and yes, even sort of go back on the things that he has said and published. What does he say? I cannot. My conscience is captive to the word of God. He says, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Such were his words before that council of leaders who held his life in the balance. Yes, he stood before an assembly of leaders. Who, yes, were willing to silence this man because of what he was preaching. Because of what he was saying. Which was nothing more than the words of God's promise. See, what moved Luther's hammer was this determination that this word that you hold in your hands or you're looking at in your phone, that's where your assurance lies. That's where your doubts can be made to silence. Because God's word is his word of promise. And the words that he gives us are words which allay our fears. And it tells us what Christ did. Go over a page to Romans chapter 3. Listen to these words. Romans 3, look at verse 21. 
Paul says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, a satisfaction through faith in his blood. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Those were Paul's words of assurance. I would likely hasten to say those are Luther's too. No priest could give him that. No sort of religious tradition could give him that. No amount of zeal in his disciplines or his devotions could give him that. It was the words of God's promise speaking to him through the Spirit that told him his assurance was found in this person of Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory, the Savior of all sinners. My friends, the same is true for you and me today. If you've ever, if you've ever questioned God's ability to save you, these are words for you. The righteousness of God revealed in Christ Jesus. This is the good news, the gospel. If you've ever questioned whether you are truly saved, you've had that wrestle and that doubt of assurance. This morning, let me tell you, That Jesus has once and for all put all of your sin under his blood. And when he died and he rose again, it was done. And all that's left for us to do is repent and believe to, yes, turn away from our old man, from our old self, from the old ways that so defined us, that so articulated the way of life that we are trying to do things on our own. And we said that we can be our own gods. To repent and believe and put our faith in this finished salvation. What does Martin Luther say in his own words? In the, the preface to his commentary on Romans, you know what he says? He says, quote, Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. And this confidence in God's grace and knowledge of it makes men glad and bold and happy. He had come He was reborn into this new way of faith. The just shall live by faith, he was reading. I think that's a really easy phrase to say. I say it's a way harder phrase to put into practice. (laughs) The just shall live by faith. Not by their own zeal, not by their own ambition, not by their own knowledge. By faith, which is literally surrender. 
Which is literally the, the acceptance of God's words as truer than any words of your own. If you've ever wrestled with assurance, I would hasten to say that it's likely because you've wrestled with this idea of this, this period there. The just shall live by faith, period. And, and, and instead we'd like to insert a comma and put and this and this and this. We'd like to add something else to this particular passage. Because we want something to assure us. We want something to give us the confidence. I am a child of God. Because look at all the things. Look at the evidence. Look at my resume. I wear a suit and a tie. Well, I don't have a tie, so I guess I failed. I wear a suit jacket to church. I sing. I I teach Sunday school. I'm involved with kids' ministry. I'm doing these things. I'm taking the offering. I'm, I'm playing the. I, I'm, I'm talking to my neighbors. I'm doing all the things. The just shall live by faith, period. I think we're so prone to fall back on ourselves. I think there's a sense in which I believe that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, we put the words in his mouth. There, you do the rest. I got you this far. You keep living right. You keep, like Luther, looking for something to settle your souls. But what were Jesus' words? Not, you do the rest. It is finished, he said. It is done. It is sealed and forever accomplished. And I would say the lesson that we are compelled to learn, like Paul did, like Luther did, like thousands of other believers throughout church history have learned, is that nothing that you and I can ever do or accomplish can ever give us the assurance that we so desperately seek. It's this gospel, this word of God's promise that does that. And again, don't misunderstand. It's not to say that these things that we do, uh, these things that we can do as, a, as an evidence of our faith are pointless or useless. No, by no means. By the way, that's what Paul gets into in Romans chapter 6. <laughs> we should be about the Lord's business. And in fact, that wonderful passage in Ephesians 2, what does he say? You have been redeemed for good works. The reason why you've been saved by faith through grace and not of yourselves is so that you could be saved to prove and to evidence this wonderful fact that you've been saved by no account of your own. The works that we do, if they come before salvation, they will never give us the quiet and the rest we so desperately seek. They are meant to be the byproduct, as it says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. They're meant to evidence what is already true. That you are God's son or daughter. Our works cannot save us. They prove that we are already saved. We are Christ's sons and daughters. This morning, if you believe in this Jesus Christ who paid the penalty of your sins on that wretched, cursed tree, you here this morning are God's sons and daughters precisely because of that. Maybe, though, this morning you're haunted by something else. 
Maybe it's not so much the things that you're doing now, but the things that you've done. You have this anxiety in your heart and your soul and your mind, and you're made to shudder at this idea that you could be made righteous. How could this be true for me? No way God could save someone like me. You have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what my past is like. How could God forgive a wretched, horrible sinner like me? You are exactly who God wants. You are exactly who he has come to seek and to save. I have not come to seek and to save and to speak words to the whole, Christ says, to the healthy, but to the sick. And Paul very much knew that too. 1 Timothy 1.15. The gospel announces of salvation to the worst of sinners. And he says, of whom I am chief. See, this is the, precisely the point. It's the guilty that God has come in Christ to redeem and to rescue and to snatch out of their sin. Therefore, when fears, when thoughts of fear and shame and guilt overrun your mind, this word of promise is your assurance. When you're tempted to think that you're too far gone for God, that he cannot get me here, he cannot save me here, he cannot make me whole here, this word of promise is your assurance. And when you're given to think, Or to assume that all of your activity is is this offering to God. And that's what gets you his favor. This word of promise is your assurance. That yes, by faith you are already in the favor of God. This might all seem theoretical. I was writing these notes and I was saying how real is this righteousness of God we can talk about it we can speak about it and yes even something in my own soul longs for some tangible evidence how real is the righteousness of God as real as Jesus's blood that spilled on the mud of Israelite soil that's how real it is That when he hung and died there and the blood that spilled from his veins mixed with that dirt and it created this awful horrific mess at the foot of that cross. That's your righteousness for you. And you can repent and believe in it and you are saved forever my friends. And nothing can take you out of your father's hand. That's your assurance. This message is my passion. And I was given the, the advice early on in my ministry to say, pick the right hill to die on. <laughs> Color of the carpet is not a good one. <laughs> know which hills to die on. This, I'm just making it very obvious to you, this is my hill. The hill I'm willing to go to the grave on, I pray. That God preserves me and keeps me in this position is you are saved by faith. The just shall live by faith, period. 
Because like, like many others, and maybe you've never thought about this before, but I know that I'm the worst sinner I know. And I need this. I need this message and this news. And the things I've tried, the things that I've devoted myself to, well and good and righteous. They can never settle my soul. They can never quiet that voice that whispers, you are guilty, you are worthless, you are wretched. You know what does this word of promise? There's a lot. There's a lot that can cause us to fear and to fret in this day and age. We can... Look at the news stories. Look at the the stories that are coming out of Washington. We can be fretted about the economy. And all of the thousands of vessels that are just parked in waters outside of our borders. We could read certain articles and we're made to think that doomsday is tomorrow. Maybe it is. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. (laughs) But there's one thing we never need to be feared of. Be fretted over. Me to be worried about. It's the salvation which is revealed in Jesus. Notice what it says. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Deliverance from sin to everyone that believeth. Regardless of where you've been. Where you're going. What you are right now. It's to everyone. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. It shows no partiality. It's offered for one and for all. And why is it that power? Why is it this dynamic word of God? Precisely because. In it is found the righteousness of God, which is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. If you've doubted your salvation, these are your words. These are your words of promise. And you can trust them, not because they're mine, not even because they're Apostle Paul's, They're God's. These are God's words which assure you this morning that if you can look back on your life, you can know for sure I've repented and believed the just shall live by faith. Maybe this morning you've never had a moment like that. Maybe you've, you could say, I've never had a moment where I stood and I was staring stark in the face the, the awfulness of my sin. You've never been made to feel the need for this power of God unto salvation. The altar is open, my friends. This book is your invitation. This gospel, this good news is your invitation to one and to all. This word of promise is the power of God unto salvation. My friends, make this day that day. Make today the day of your salvation. And you can walk out these doors with something no one can take away from you. With something no one can threaten you with anything. It's the words of God's assurance that you are his son. You are his daughter forever. Let us pray.